We are back into the book of Ruth as we continue through this beautiful series. It, it's been, it's been a, a book that started with tragedy, and now it's going to start looking a little bit brighter. It's going to start getting beautiful now. I've been promising you this is a beautiful love story that God has written into his book, and the author of Ruth is a master storyteller. They really are skillful. They really are, are clever in the wording, in how they, they pitch the scenes. Well, last week, uh, I promised you, and this week it happens, the two main characters who end up the love story being all about, they meet, all right? This is Boaz and Ruth. They meet this week. It's going to be beautiful. Last week, we saw that the, the uh, failure of Elimelech and leading his family over to Moab, away from God's people and promises, ended in uh, disaster, and we saw that God uh, allowed for Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and her two sons to die, and she was left only with her two uh, daughters-in-law. One of them, uh, as she compelled them, went back to Moab, did not come with her as she returned to Judah. But uh, Ruth promised herself, covenanted herself to Naomi so that she would stay with her, very much expecting, it seems, that they would just go back, live in poverty, and probably die, but she would not reject the mother of her late husband. She had promised herself to her husband and his family, and now she did not undo that covenant, but continued in it and followed Naomi back home to Judea, to the town of Bethlehem. And, and so our, our story takes off. And we saw last week that it's the beginning of the harvest time. So let's read from verse 1 in chapter 2 of this wonderful book of Ruth. Verse 1 reads like this. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. We're going to pause there. We'll take off uh, in a little bit, but, but right there, we're, we're introduced. Next main character who's going to come alongside of Ruth and, and really steal the show away from Naomi. Chapter 1 was all about Naomi, her suffering, her loss, and her learning and realizing God is in control of all of this. He had blessed me with a family. It's him that took it away. I, I submit to God of Israel, and so she returned to his land. But now we're looking at Ruth and Boaz, starting with Boaz, verse 1. Now, Boaz is a relative of some kind of Naomi's late husband, Elimelech, Ruth's father-in-law. Boaz is related to him, and the, the wording does not mean a brother or someone quite close, probably a bit closer than a cousin, uh, but he was, he was a uh, distant, not-too-distant relative. You'd probably still see him at, uh, at uh, extended family Christmases. Uh, the word that it uses there of the clan of Elimelech, the, saying that he's in the same clan, uh, clan is sort of halfway in between. If you know your Old Testament at all, you had the, the 12 tribes of Israel, and then they broke down, and then into the very uh, households, you had the families and whatnot. Well, the clan is sort of halfway in between tribe and family. Extended family, they probably, as we saw in chapter 1, are in the clan of the Ephrathites, who were descendant from Ephrath, who historically we know did live in Bethlehem. So that's very likely. So here he is, Boaz, same family clan as Elimelech, and it says that he is a worthy man. This word uh, used in the Old Testament often means a man of war. This guy can fight. He has a sword. He's got a safe with weapons in it. He protects. He's a big, strong man. He's got valor. That's one of the ways this term is used. 
Another way this term is used is to mean that he's somebody of influence, of a bit of power in society, whether he's officially in a role in leadership or that he's just somebody who people listen to, people know, they notice when his entourage pulls into town, this is Boaz. He's a man of valor. He's a man of, of, of influence. It also means that he's a man of wealth. That he's a guy who's got a, a good inheritance with him, that he's worked hard in these, we remember this is famine time, just coming out of famine, so, so he's done well to keep his wealth, and as we'll see soon, his fields of harvest, he's done well with himself to keep all of that. So he's, he's a man of valor, he's integrity, he's got uh, an inher- uh, sorry, he's got influence, and he's got some wealth, and he can throw a punch, let's just put that in there as well. He's a man's man. This is the guy that all the mums are asking about to their daughters. Have you considered Boaz? Have you thought about Boaz? Have you given him a call? I really think you should give Boaz a call because Boaz is, we don't know why, he's single. He's available. He hasn't put a ring on any gal's finger yet. He is available. This is good news for us in the middle of the beginning of a love story. This is good. So this is Boaz, respectable man, eligible bachelor. That's what the author wants you to realize. He's otherwise unintroduced so far, and we just get thrown in to meet Boaz in this way. Boaz's name means, in him is strength. That's a good name. A couple of generations later, Solomon, building the temple of God, is going to name one of the main pillars, one of the two pillars out the front of the temple. One of them is going to be named Boaz, either after his great-great-great-grandfather, or maybe simply uh, because that was a, a commonly used term. We're not 100% sure, but Boaz is a strong, firm, protective, manly name. So the author wants you to know he's a good guy. He's a guy that we should be keeping an eye on. He's a guy that's kind of the hero of this story. Expect something from him. Watch this space. That's what the author is saying. And then verse 2 sort of jumps right out of the timeline of, or the story of Boaz, we just get introduced to him and then we're, we're left away from him back to Ruth and Naomi. Is it one of those movies when there's, a, when there's a quick cut away from the scene you were watching, getting interested in? I wonder if Boaz will ever come back into the story again is how we're supposed to feel. Well, yes, he indeed does do that. So here's Boaz and now we look at verse 2 with me. Look, look there as we go back to Naomi and Ruth. Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. So this is Ruth asking permission to her mother-in-law to go down to the field. Okay, So Ruth is still uh, in some kind of submissive role to Naomi, still sees her as a mother-in-law. And she's asking because she's really responsible for the care and provision and providence of her, of her mother-in-law. Her mother is a mourning widow. She is old. She is hungry. She is poor. She is alone of family in this land. She is sad. And the last few verses of our prior chapter told us that she is depressed. Because she knows God's in control, but she feels the weight of loss that God has brought into her life through suffering. And that's fine. We, we made a point last week of saying, knowing that God's in control of everything doesn't mean that we're never allowed to feel the heaviness and reality of human emotions. Of course we should. We must. But Naomi called Mara, she wanted herself to be called, meaning bitter, bitterness. 
That woman now says to Ruth, yes, you may go to the field and work. Now, a bit of historical uh, specificity here. When Ruth says, I'm going to go down to the field and glean. This is uh, in, the, in the barley harvest, as we read in chapter 1. So this is the same time of year that this is being preached, about April, May. And uh, in the barley harvest, how it would work was there was two main locations that that harvest end, therefore the book of Ruth, is going to be uh, taking place on. That's, that's uh, barley features in our little graphic up here. It was taken, harvested from the field. So field is setting one. And then it was taken to the threshing floor. So that's setting number two. At the field, which is where we find ourselves, there was three main steps to the process. They would... Uh, step number one was the cutting. So they would go into this field filled with grain. They would grab a handful, cut it off, and put it into piles. Step two is the women would come along after these male workers had cut it, and they would tie these bundles of barley together, bundles of grain. And then the third step was that they would be loaded up onto the carts and transported to the threshing floor. And that's step two. At the threshing floor, they would take this grain, uh, these heads of grain, and they would crush them, or they would stomp on them, or get cows to walk over them, in order to separate the ears from the head. Sounds graphic, but it's grain. Uh, Or what they would be doing is getting the the edible pieces away from the husk. Uh, And then next after that is that they would winnow. So they would throw, or now that it's all beaten and crushed, then they throw it up into the wind, because the wind would take away those husky bits that are no good for anything. They, they, that carries it away in the breeze. And what would fall back down to the ground is just the grain. Okay, So they would throw it up in the air. It would fall back down. And each time the, the waste, the powdery uh, husks is being blown away. And then lastly, it's put all together in bags and taken off to be stored or sold. That, that's the process. And that sounds strangely historical. And why are we talking about it? Well, this is... Going, all of our next uh, few chapters are going to take place somewhere along that process. So Ruth says, I'm going to go to the field where that is going on and I'm going to glean. Now another technical term, gleaning was what was, what was a provision allowed in the Hebrew world where God had commanded his people a little bit of a welfare system. He had said, every single field is mine, I own it. So if you cultivate it, if you're a farmer and you own it, you're only a sub-owner. It's, it's ultimately mine. You can use some of it. But I want you to leave some of it, the, the, uh, some leftovers of whatever you harvest, I want you to leave behind for the poor people, for the widows, for those without jobs, or without valor, wherewithal, and wealth like Boaz. The people like Ruth, the people like Naomi, and the people who like Ruth are from other countries and passing through. So God commanded that they leave the corners of their fields unharvested. And the other command was that if they're cutting and making piles, and as they're making the piles into ties, and as they're transporting it to the threshing floor, if they drop bits, they're not allowed to go back and pick it all up. And they weren't allowed to be stringent in how they would cut to make sure that they got every single last piece. They were to be a little bit gracious, a little bit uh, relaxed with that, not to be unproductive, but so that the people who would follow them in the work, called the gleaners, would be able to come and glean or take the leftovers or whatever was dropped. This is the, the ancient world's equivalent of 
of maybe uh, going to uh, restaurants or, or the back of Coles and, and picking up all of the damaged goods that are put out the back, right, that, that aren't going to be sold. They're left out the back for other people to collect. Or, or maybe uh, it, it's very similar to, to our modern-day collecting of aluminium cans in order to cash it in at the end of the month and, and send it off, you know, how people do that. Well, well, that's sort of where Ruth finds herself. Bottom of the rung of society. Not going well, but she says, I'm going to go to a field and glean. Well, Naomi says, yes, daughter, go and do that. So she set out, verse 3 tells us, and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. So the reapers are the workers, the gleaners are the poor that come behind afterwards, picking up the leftovers. So it says that she gleaned after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech, just in case you forgot before. She happened to come to the field of Boaz. This is what I love about this story. So we, we, we met Boaz, we've just re-met Ruth and Naomi, but now we're being introduced to Lady Luck. Every good love story involves this lady. A little bit of lady luck that, that is uh, spread through the story. Lots of coincidence and, and oh, would you, would you look at this? This is what happens in good love stories. It's what happens in the book of Ruth. In fact, the language of this book is intentional to turn your ear and get your attention when, when coincidental things happen. Oh, it's very interesting. The, the language is kind of... Uh, um, she happened to happen upon the field of Boaz. It's, it's a double wording, really showing you this is no coincidence. But uh, so it goes. It, it, she, it says that she, um, she happened, she, she had a lucky moment, she, uh, 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 she striked out, and she, she happened to fall on the field of Boaz. It just so happened he worked there. Right? Every mom, every dad, if you've got teenage kids or, or, or young adult uh, 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 children, you, maybe you've heard this. There's always a whole lot of coincidence surrounding two people who like each other, isn't there? Right? The, ga the, the gal that you've told your son to stop talking to, he just happened to run into at the, at the park. I, would you, Mama, I had no idea she was there. And we, yeah, we just spent the afternoon together. Oh, what good luck. Right? Or, 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 or the guy that you've told her to stop talking to or to be a little bit careful of or, or don't want you spending time with him anymore for, you know, wise parental reasons. And then she, Mum, I just went to a restaurant to grab a bite to eat. I didn't know he worked there. Would you look at that? He happened to be serving at my table. And yeah, we chatted for, he, he took his break. We sat down together, had a meal. Oh, how could I have known? It was, it was just all very lucky, Mum. That's what's happening here. But it's not, it's not sneaky, it's not intentional. Ruth and Boaz have no idea who that each other are in this scene. This is, really is pure luck, as we would say it. I remember it's good fun to tell a little bit of a story about my wife and I as we met in high school because we, I, I had a secret crush on her. Uh, it wasn't secret among my friends, but I had a massive crush on Joy, but she, she wasn't interested in me, have no idea why, uh, mystery of my life, but she didn't like me in, 
in high school, but uh, she encouraged me because uh, she had seen me do a bit of acting in high school. She'd encouraged me to, to do the school play, and I had no interest in doing the school play, learning Shakespeare, except for the fact that this pretty girl was telling me, I think you'd be really good in it. It'll be lots of fun. Everyone hangs out for hours and hours after school. And I said, you know what? I, I think I'm into acting now. Yeah, I, I love Shakespeare. Who that, who that guy is, cool. I'll, I'll do the play. So I did the play. And as luck would have it, Joy was the main actress who fell in love with the main uh, other character, and I got the role of the bad guy who never really spoke to Joy's character. But, but as, as luck would have it, the, the guy who got the lead role had to, for an unforeseen circumstance that no one could have seen coming, had to pull out. I killed him. No, that's not what happened. But, but he had to pull out and I got put into that role and as luck would have it, I had to do the old uh, romance scenes with this beautiful gal named Joy. And I was just the happiest guy ever. Every good love story has some coincidences, has, a, has some love story, uh, sorry, some luck in the love story. And I love seeing this in the book of Ruth. It makes me feel very biblical about my, my, um, my own love story. <clears throat> but here we go. She happened upon the, the field of Boaz. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, tells us, that the, the lot is cast into the lap, or in, in, in our language, the dice is thrown onto the table, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's every decision is from the Lord. See, as we look at the book of Ruth, we're learning a lesson in real life about providence. Yes, romance, but providence. How God controls all things, governs all things towards his aims, purposes, and ends. And so what we need to see is, as something as random as throwing a dice, flipping a coin, casting a lot, picking a random field and going there to glean, God is involved with those moments. That's the doctrine of providence. That there really is, in your life, there is no such thing as lady luck, but a sovereign God. There is no such thing as coincidence, but a sovereign God who's getting your attention. That's our doctrine of providence. Because all things are ordained by God, every little thing is significant in his plan. Every decision that you make, you do not need to worry that there's an eternity resting on every single tiny decision, but you do need to be aware that every decision takes place within God's eternal plan and therefore has eternal significance. We just don't see everything yet. Here's the reality. God is, and this is the, an example that is often given by theologians and commentators on the book of Ruth. God is weaving a tapestry, a, a beautiful uh, artwork with threads, okay? He's, he's weaving a tapestry all throughout history with all different nations, people, families, times, cultures, situations, all working it all together to a beautiful tapestry art piece. But but from our point of view, we're beneath. We're, we're behind the weaving board. And so from beneath, all you look up and all you see is knots, threads hanging there, loose ends that didn't meet. It, it's a mess. It does not look very nice. But, but if you can see it from above, you notice that it's a beautiful picture all coming together. Now, at the moment, you and I, we, we get those rare glimpses 
But at the moment, you and I don't get to, to look from above and see what God sees. But we see by faith that God is doing something. He is providentially in control of all things in my life. It is for my good and it is for his glory. Romans chapter 11 verse 36 says, for, for, speaking of the Lord, from him, through him, to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is our conviction. Everything is working to the providential work of God. We, we need to introduce into this broader doctrine of providence, we need to introduce, as we see happening with Ruth, the, doc, the, 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 the sub-doctrine of concurrence. What we mean by that is, is that while, while we make decisions, the Lord is also working. And while the Lord is working, we are also making decisions. We don't get to say, well, God's doing things so I can relax and, and sit back and do nothing. No. And, and we also don't say, well, I'm working here. God can do something else. No. Both things are working together, interwoven and intermingled with each other. Okay, so, so that you and I never have to say, well, that situation, did God do that or did I do that? And if you're talking about sin and who's responsible for sin, that's a different discussion. But, but as an outcome of a situation, we say, well, did I do that or did God do that? Did, I, did, did God do that or did science do that? Did God do that or was, or was that just coincidence? And the, the, the answer is yes. Yes. God did that and those other workings or, act, or choices went into that. This is the, the, uh, the, what we call primary and secondary causes. God works invisibly behind the scenes according to his decrees which he made before he created the world. He's primary. We work visibly in front of the scene and according to our own genuine real choices. That's our secondary causes of all things. And so we, this word uh, concurrence is given to this. This is a doctrine that shows that you can see in the wording of concurrence is con, meaning with, and currents, which is the same kind of word as you would speak of rivers. Right? There's a current. There's a flow. So we can see, well, you, you know, that there are, maybe you live near one, you've been to one, you jump on the boat and you uh, drive past somewhere. Two rivers merge. One river is, is flowing from east, the other from south. And where they meet is called, a, they converge, or there is called a concurrence, where these two independent streams come into the one and continue to run together. And that's the doctrine of concurrence. Your choices are real. God's decrees are real. God is primary, we are secondary, both run together. The doctrine of concurrence, a beautiful paradox in the doctrine of providence, but we see it happening here. Ruth decided to go to a field. God sent her there with a little bit of help of Lady Luck. Ruth thinks, I've found a great old field. So we'll keep on reading here. Ruth doesn't know who Boaz is at this point, but they, they meet and it's, it's quite cute. Verse 4, and behold, that's another little, little bit of a, a funny little word that he throws in there. Oh, and would you look at that? Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. 
And they all answered, the Lord bless you. Here's what's happening. Boaz, the boss, pulls up in his Land Rover, opens the door, gets out, inspects the site, calls out to his tradies, calls out to his men who are working for him. The Lord bless you. All right, how many of you, you go to work on a Monday morning, that's not your experience with your boss. You're not worshiping together. You're not blessing each other, all right, with biblical uh, uh, priestly blessings. You're not singing psalms and psalters together on a Monday morning during uh, the, the employee's meeting. No. No, that's not a common occurrence, but this is, this is the man Boaz. He's not just godly and a man of valor. He brings his religion, his relationship with God into his work. This is what happens when we believe in the doctrine of providence. God is in all things, behind all things. Therefore, every part of your life should come into God's control. So he has this, this godliness about how he does business. He looks after his men. He looks after his workers and his young women. He, he is there on the scene. I like to imagine he had a, a little bit of a beard, probably Ray-Bans, a, a, a nice shirt on. He's looking out over his workers. And he says in verse uh, 5, the story tells us, Then Boaz said to his young man, who is in charge of the reapers, so, so somewhat of a manager, who is in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So <clears throat> what he's asking is, he, he, he's walking through and lo and behold, here's Boaz at the same time as Ruth and he sees a young, beautiful gal. But she's in work and gear, so she probably didn't catch his eye for that reason, but, but he notices a gal that, that he didn't employ, he didn't interview, he's not sure what she's doing here, so he asks her, well, whose is she, basically? Uh, because she's probably either somebody's servant, somebody's husband, somebody sent her here to glean. Uh, she, she's a slave, maybe, if she was taken in battle. Who knows? What's this woman doing here? Whose is she? And so the man tells her, well, the servant who is in charge of the reapers answered, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves and the reapers. And so she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So this, this is, this is uh, uh, the story. There's two ways to translate this. Uh, the ESV here sort of leans one way, but there's another very legitimate way to translate it. This employer of Boaz, he looks at him and he says, oh, this, this lady, well, well, she out there, maybe they can see her in the field. She came... Uh, she asked if she could uh, glean here, and she's been working all day. She took a short rest, and she's back at it. She's the one we've heard about, that Moabite woman. You know, Boaz, you've heard her, the Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from Moab. Or the translation could read that she's standing quite close, and as he tells the story to Boaz, he's really saying she came probably after gleaning at other fields and looking at other fields, she came uh, quite tired from the work to Boaz's field, right? She happened upon here. And she asked if she could, now the, the word says, gather among the sheaves, the, the sheaves. But the other way to translate that is that she would gather from the sheaves. In other words, my men are going and cutting things down and tying them all up. She's asked quite boldly, this is unusual, if she can come up to those piles and pull, pull the good grain 
from there, keep that for herself instead of walking behind and gathering with everybody else. There's probably competition. There's probably loads of other people. Famine has just ended. So there's probably lots of other poor, hungry people who are doing this. She's going to be at the back of the line as a Moabite, foreigner. So she's asking, can I, I'm looking after Naomi. I'm looking after a poor widowed woman. You might have heard of her. She, she was of standing before we left, uh, before she left for Moab. May I please, for her sake, gather in a highly favored way. And she, and so he tells the story to Boaz, and she's, the language is not that she's gone off and has been working all day, but that she's remained standing there waiting for authority to do so all day. She's not going to take no for an answer, I don't think. I told her I couldn't give that authority, but here you are, you can answer. Now, that, that's a potential translation. Either way, what's happened is Ruth is here working hard or, or asking in an implorative way in order to make money and food for her poor mother-in-law. Very noble character. And here is, here is Boaz. The boss has come onto the, onto the scene. He's got the authority. He can get rid of this assuming woman who's come onto his field. He can get rid of her. He can welcome her. He can bless her. He can curse her. What's he going to do? He's the one in charge. Well, he says in verse 8, it tells us, Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. Here we go. Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go uh, and keep close on my young women. Let, let, sorry, I missed a line. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn." So Boaz comes, he hears uh, uh, the story of, of what she's been doing all day, and he blesses her. He does not just allow her to stay, he says, please stay, and just in case you have any trouble, don't just glean among the rest, come with the women who work for me and glean with them in the front row of gleaning, take all that you need, be here among my people. This is an invitation, come and find yourself among my people, there's hints of an invitation to be treated as family here. This was unexpected from Ruth. Back in verse 2, she had said that she would hopefully go to the field and uh, after in, in whose sight I shall find favor. She was crossing her fingers, hoping against hope for some favor. Because even though the law was to glean, be able to glean, she hoped that the person who owned the field would look on her well and with favor, because if not, she'll be at the back of the line. She'll not gain much. This is uh, 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 little work and little to be gained by this work to begin with. So she's hoping she finds favor. In Boaz, she finds that favor. She's confused as to why, and we'll look at why in a bit, but, but look at the elements of what Boaz has said. He says, stick with my women, be a part of my employee uh, group, even though he's not going to pay her like that, but, but he's saying, be among my people, my group, my staff. <clears throat> he says in verse 9, have I not charged the young men not to touch you? So he's given her an opportunity, he's given her employment, 
But then he also gives her protection, because this is what manly God do. They protect women. They protect the vulnerable. He gives her protection, saying that I charge the young men not to touch you. Gleaners back then, if, if they were walking behind the, the employees and they were picking up the, the, uh, the grain, sometimes there would be fights among them, and so the, the employee men would have to come and uh, keep, uh, put them straight. Or if they were taking a bit much, taking more than was really they, uh, their allowance to do, the, the workers would have to rough them up a little bit to keep them in line. This is a, a business, by the way. We've got mouths to feed. And, and, uh, and the other reality is that in this time, it was dangerous to be a woman, a single woman, out in the field. You might get rough, uh, roughed up. Uh, she was a Moabite, so they're already going to be racist towards her. She's at risk of being treated poorly, and being robbed in the fields where other people might not be looking, and even common was rape. So, so she's in this dangerous way, and Boaz says, I've charged my men to keep watch over you, but not touch you. Stay among my people, be safe, be employed, but they're not going to touch you, lay a hand on you, or hurt you. You can take what you want, and they will not stop you. Okay, so he's come on. He's heard about this, this Ruth girl out in his field and he, he's called a quick, uh, member, uh, quick uh, meeting, staff meeting there on the field. And he called all his young men in and he said, guys, do, do, you, see, do you see the girl out there? New girl, very, very pretty. Do you see her? Yes. Oh, Boaz, we see her. You, we noticed her. I, I've got my buttons all done up and my socks pulled up. I'm burping a little bit less out in the field today because I see the pretty young gal in the field working with us. And Boaz tells them, if you touch her, I've been in the grain business a long time. I know how to separate ears from heads of grain. I'll do it to you. Don't touch that girl. Leave her alone. If you put one finger on her, you'll find out what Boaz is called Boaz for. A worthy man, valor, I've got a sword, I'm going to use it. He threatens his young man like a good employer does sometimes, okay, and puts in, as one commentator had a joke, he said this was probably the world's first anti-sexual harassment policy. And that's good, that's great. Thank you, Boaz. Look after women in need. And so he does. Promises of protection and also more provision because he says... Then, and you can drink, when you are thirsty, from the vessels of water that the young man have drawn. It is usual in this context that the women would do the drawing of the water from the well, and especially the foreign women. Boaz says, no, my men will take the water. You can drink from what they bring up. Role reversal. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Why is all of this? We ask why. And Naomi, sorry, Ruth asks why. In verse 10, she begins to ask. She says that, that she then fell on her face, bowing to the ground, right? She would have gone down onto her knees and probably placed her forehead on the ground before him, showing immense respect, showing immense gratitude, but also showing that she is much lower than this man in society. She does this and says, why have I found favor in your eyes, as she hoped to, to somebody in verse 2, why now have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, a foreigner. She is confused. There is nothing about her that is attractive socially to a rich, wealthy, affluent man of valor who is a Jew. Well, he answers, 
in verse 11. She, she gives us a good example here, just by the way. Women do well, young women do well to ask men who are interested or who give them blessings or who give them things, ask them why they're doing that, okay? Not every guy who wants to, to buy you things and bless you and, and take you out on a date has good motives, but also, not every guy who gets you a cup of water is going to propose the next time they see you, okay? That's kind of the, the, the Christian young girl way to say, to say thank you. He, gets, he grabs you a coffee while he's getting himself on. You say, thank you, and I do. And then there should be a wedding. And no, not always the case. So, so, some, we just need to be aware that there are men who do good things with evil intentions. And men who do good things without romantic intentions, but Ruth asks why. What's going on? But Boaz tells us why in verse 11. Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of her husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. He's aware of her reputation. And this is, this is exemplary. What he loves about this gal, what he appreciates about her is her character. He appreciates her character. He's heard her reputation. She left Moab, the Moabites, her God, her riches that she might have had with her family, her parents, and she came to be and to help and to support and maybe even to die with Naomi. This woman is, is loyal. This woman is exemplary. She is noble. I, I love this character in her. Now, now we don't know, we, get, we don't understand yet if there's any romantic um, activity. We don't think that there's any sort of infatuation or love that's coming from Boaz at this point. Not yet, that, that's coming. But at this point, he wants to bless her because of her character, because of what she's sacrificed. He's looking at her as a hard worker here in the field as a noble woman who has helped Naomi, and as a fearer of the Lord Yahweh who, has, who have, has left her old ways. He appreciates her character. Men, this is important. Now, we should start here. Young men looking for women, looking for a wife to, to love and sacrifice for all the days of your life. Remember what Proverbs tells us, that charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And a man who seeks a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Furthermore, I want to ask the question even more, why would Boaz be so willing to bless her in such an amazing way? What I think is, uh, is amazing is the similarities here between Ruth and Boaz's mother. You might have heard of Boaz's mother before, and, and she doesn't uh, come up in the book of Ruth. The mother of Boaz was a lady by the name of Rahab. Only mentioned briefly in Scripture, but she's very significant. Rahab was the woman who was a prostitute in the land of Canaan when the 12 spies of Israel came into the land of Canaan, I'm sure you remember this story, that, that they come into the field and they look at the land and they say, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, we want to take it, not sure if we will be able to, but, 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 but then they, they end up uh, walking around and Jericho falls. Well, Rahab lived in the town of Jericho as a prostitute, as a young woman. And she had helped those spies look at the city, learn about it, and kept them safe until they left. And 
She had been spared only her household with the one family to be spared and kept alive when the Jews came in and destroyed the city. And Rahab now, this ex-prostitute, Canaanite, pagan woman, not a Jew, is married to a Jewish man by the name of Salmon. And Boaz, taking after his father, looks at a Canaanite, sinful, formerly sinful woman, a foreigner, someone who's not like anybody else, but who, out of fear for the Lord, out of faith in this God of Abraham, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, would leave family, leave nation, and leave her own cult religion to that woman, both Salmon, Boaz's father, and also to Boaz. They respect that, honor that, and for that sake, accept them in as one of their own, marry them, and bring them into their family. That, that's going to be future for Boaz and Ruth. But at the moment, while maybe the rest of the nation, the rest of the workers, the rest of, of that whole country of Israel would look at somebody like Ruth with, with disdain, maybe even distrust over her, her claim to now be following God, Yahweh, Boaz sees this woman as one accepted by God, noble in character, and just so much like his mother. Hebrews 11 verse 33 tells us, that by faith Rahab, right, in this hall of fame of the faithful, it mentions Rahab. It says, when Jericho was falling, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had been given a friendly welcome. She had given, sorry, a friendly welcome to the spies. You see, this is the reality. No matter who you are, what your background is, if by fear to God, and accepting the promises and commands that he makes, you come into covenant with him, repenting of and leaving behind everything that you are and all that you have, leaving behind your sin, coming to him in faith, he accepts you. And so Boaz does too, to Ruth. It's an amazing part of the story. Let's keep going because our, our time is just about out. He then says to this woman who is so thankful, who he accepts, he says, the Lord repay you. For what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. The language that Boaz uses in saying, may God repay you, is employer language. He's basically saying, may God not hold the debt May God not leave you unpaid for what you have done. Which sounds strange to us because we know that we're saved by faith, not by works. No man is, uh, is, is getting God in our debt. God owes us nothing. What is he talking about? I think in the background is this understanding that Proverbs 19 tells us about. That whoever is generous to the poor, as Ruth was towards Naomi, giving her, her whole life, even uh, possibly to death, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Do you see that? That when you give to the poor, sacrifice for other people in situations or in, in, because of um, um, wealth situations or whatever it is, when somebody is in need, you sacrifice for them, 
God says he will repay you. Not because he owes you anything, but because that other person owes you something. And unable to pay themselves, God will bring you repayment. And so Boaz says that to Ruth. May he repay you. In the coming chapter, we're going to see, in the rest of this chapter, sorry, we're going to see how the Lord repays her. And a bit of a hint, it's through Boaz. But he says that, and, and she is enamored, pardon me, enamored and amazed at how well he treats her, despite her unworthiness. Well, do you see the beauty of the gospel foreshadowed in this love story? Of course, the whole gospel is a love story between God and his elect people needing redemption from sin. And in here, we see Jesus, our greater Boaz, foreshadowed because he is the one who gives great blessings to the undeserving, to the sexually impure, who worship other things more than him, who have worshipped maybe even for some of us out there have been worshipping demonic occult practices, who have lived away from God, ignoring Him all of your life. Maybe you live in the context of a church because that's where your family is, but in your heart you are far from Him, deep in sin, despising His ways. To you, to you, unworthy though you are, filthy though we may be in our sin, to us, sinners, he can say, Jesus can say, as the one who has all authority, you are my child, you are my friend, you are my servant, you are my bride, I clean you, forgive you, justify you, accept you, I free you, I recreate you, I bless you. That's what Jesus does. He's like Boaz coming onto the scene, authoritative. No one else can say, that's not really fair. That's a little too much blessing. Why don't you hold on? No, this is Jesus. And in all authority, he gives grace, blessing, forgiveness to the unworthy, the impure, and the defiled. Because he died on the cross to bring sinners to himself. The very purpose of his death was to bring Filthy sinners in, so don't stand far off claiming that you're sinful so God can't have you. That you're filthy so God won't forgive you. No, he won't on your own standing. But in Christ who died for you, he gives you his righteousness. You can be saved, forgiven, and brought into the covenant of God. Made one of his people. You can accept God's blessing in Christ and take Ruth as an example. Do not push that away. Do not try and fake humility, which is really pride, when you, when you reject the blessing of God because you are not worthy. But rather bow before Him. Recognize His sovereignty and your unworthiness and accept that gift of grace today. And Christians, isn't it a beautiful thing that this is offered to those who are sinful? You and I remain still imperfect, and every day we need the grace of God. He, like a good, forgiving, beautiful, wonderful Boaz, is our soul's husband who forgives us, brings us in, equips us, and blesses us. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this book of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and all the other characters you're going to bring about. Thank you for this book that tells us their story, which is really the story of Christ in history. The story of love is really the story of your gospel. God, I pray that you would bring in the lost.
bring in the damned and the condemned and make them your accepted people. And Lord, may you, as, as, as we submit to your providential plans, may you guide us, lead us where we should go. As we trust in your purposes, may we be wise in who we pursue, in marriage, in friendship, in fellowship, and how we pursue and what we pursue. May you oversee all of this for your glory. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.